Good morning. Yes, indeed, as Mario announced today, we're going to return back to the life of Paul, and we're calling it the Life of Paul Series 2. And just like the slide says, it is going to be a sermon about the apostle, the missionary, the preacher of the New Testament. This is technically part 15, uh, as, as again Mario said earlier. Um, the other 14 parts were in Series 1. And for those of you who are like calendar and organized people, you could take out your phone calendar right now, find July 3rd, put in the life of Paul, and then hit repeat weekly until like October 2nd, which is where we're going to end these next 14, uh, God willing, we'll end those, these series as we keep going through here. Um, if you think about it, it's kind of remarkable that 28 sermons and counting, because even when we get to October, the life of Paul will not be finished. We will just be taking a break then. It's kind of remarkable to think about 28 sermons about this guy. But this is really important for you to know. Uh, I, I think I just want to remind us when we say that when we preach here at Good News, we always, always, always want it to be a gospel-centered sermon. Like, there are 28 sermons and counting on the life of Paul, and every time we preach this, Paul is never going to be the main character. He's not the star of the show. But through his life, the main character, the star of the show, if you will, the star of the sermon, is Jesus. Like We want to lift him up, worship him, and praise him. Jesus is the main character. He is the star. He is the gospel. Jesus is the center. And I guess I just want you to know that this series is not so much about the life of Paul as it is the life of Paul's Lord and Savior. And so we want to preach from that perspective. One of the challenges today is that as we start part 15, it's been 11 weeks since we last saw Paul and Barnabas, and they were wrapping up their first missionary trip. Uh, we paused right before Easter, uh, actually on Easter, and so let me just give a few sentences to recap the 14 sermons that we've already had as a jump start into this series. Okay? We have learned so far that Paul is a highly trained religious teacher. He ranked at the top of his class in knowing about God and knowing God's law. But just because you know about God and you know about his law does not make you a Christian. Paul was not a Christian at the first part of his life that we've seen. Right? Nobody that just knows about God is just necessarily a Christian. He, Paul, was, he, was, he hated Christians, persecuted Christians, even was responsible and part of killing Christians. And then in Acts 9, we find out that Paul does convert to Christianity. Ironically, while on the road to Damascus to go get more Christians, God saves him, changes his life Completely, radically, whatever big word you want to use there, that's what God did there. In chapter 9, somewhere between verses 6 through 11, Paul is born again, saved, changed, transformed. And then by verse 20 of chapter 9, he is preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This was no small life change that took place. And then in Acts 11 through 14, we had learned that Paul teams up with Barnabas, and they take this missions trip. And it leads to both Jews and, for the very first time, Gentiles 
believing the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. If you stop and think about it, this most unlikely movement called Christianity started by Jesus and 12 disciples, like very little education, very little money, is now gaining momentum as the gospel spreads through people like Peter, Paul, and Barnabas that we're going to look at today. Paul traveled these 15 cities on this first missionary's trip, and we have a map of that, I think. This kind of just gives a recap for us. The blue is where they take off from in Antioch. You can see how he makes his way around to these 15 different spots and returns back home, covering some 1,200 miles by foot and by boat. So it's quite the trip that he has taken through where you have there. Each of these cities has its own unique story and circumstances, and we have looked at all of those. But there is one repeating theme that took place time and time again. Paul and Barnabas would show up at the city, and they would go to the synagogue. They would go to the Jews first. There they would teach the gospel, and that would last for a little while, and then they would get kicked out of the synagogue. And from the synagogue, they went to the streets, the marketplace. And that's where the non-Jews, the Gentiles, that's where they would hear about this gospel message. They would hear about their sin, and they would hear the good news about Jesus. And they would preach that and preach that and preach that until they would wear out their welcome there. And then usually it meant flee for their life because of persecution, and they would go to the next town and repeat that same pattern over and over again. That is the pattern that we have found. And to bring us up to speed, then, in Acts 14, verses 26 through 28, tells how this missions trip ended. They sailed back to Antioch, where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. And they arrived and gathered the church together. They reported everything that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent considerable time with the disciples. It was kind of like how our track people are feeling right now. Ah, mission completed. Home sweet home. Sitting around, kicked back in their lazy boys, sharing stories about all that God had done, including he had opened this door to the Gentiles with the gospel. But as you can imagine, the open door to the Gentiles didn't come without its share of trouble. And that's where we are going to pick up the series today in Acts 15, which is most popular known as the meeting or the Jerusalem Council meeting. This meeting, it is a linchpin. It, it is a huge vital in preserving the true meaning of the gospel. And this meeting is a wonderful example of what church leadership looks like done well. There's a lot of unity striving happening here. And so I want us to know about this Jerusalem Council meeting. I think it's really important. Like, this is part of our church history. Hey, how did the church look way back when it started? This is how it looked. This is how they um, defended the gospel when it was attacked. This is how they related to one another and dealt with their problems. And I want us to know that because it is very true. We still have our own Jerusalem Council meetings that happen today. Like, we have issues, watch this, not outside the church, but inside the church that is causing trouble like dangerous and sometimes it's subtle and so that is what this jerusalem council chapter is going to show us and i think it's really important that we take a look at it because it's very applicable to us we will get to that at the end so here we have the situation acts 15 
It could significantly derail the church. It is a fork in the road moment. How the church leadership handles the teaching that's going on in Acts 15 is going to matter forever. Like today, it still matters. Verse 1, some men came down from Judea and they began to teach the brothers. Well, it sounds good so far. It's always nice to have guest speakers come. Hey, we're going to teach. But then, listen to their message. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Wait a minute. Let me put that in a true and false question for you. Ready? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Ooh. So the teachers from Judea are teaching a false gospel. That's what was being taught to our forefathers in the early church. Now remember, most of the first Christians were Jews. Most of the first Christians then were circumcised. You see the pattern here? Most of them were raised on all these Old Testament laws, all 613 of them, and one of them said you had to be circumcised. That that was the sign of the covenant made between God and Israel, that that separated the Jews from all the other people in the world. With circumcision. Which means, let's take a minute and talk about circumcision. This was supposed to happen on Father's Day. Remember that? And Mario strategically added a few extra, spending someone else's money, which were really good. What a great series, yes? It's great, yes? And now we get it today. Circumcision. Um, I doubt that this law of circumcision really hits home to us the way it did back in Acts 15 and before. I, I, I know it's a pretty common thing in the United States. I don't know your personal view of circumcision. Honestly, I don't care your view of circumcision. I did do some dabbling on the Internet and found this to be the facts, if it's true. 80% of Americans are circumcised. More so in the Northeast land, not so much out west, and somewhere in between here in the south. Israel and Muslim nations are leading the race in circumcision. High 90% marks of men are circumcised. But globally, only 38% of men are circumcised. Europeans don't think too much about it. In Japan and Honduras, think even less. That's what I found. But it is important for us to understand what circumcision really represents to the Jews and their covenant with God. Like I said, for many of us, circumcision comes down to some parents making a decision about hygiene and health and making it happen. But for the Jew, circumcision was about a lot more than that. This, this was God's idea to have be done. Right? No, no one thought this up. Hey, God, how about we do this? No, it was God said, do this. Why? Why would God make circumcision the outward sign? It's bloody. It's, it's awkward. It's a little different. It's nasty. It's entirely unpleasant. Why would he make this as the external sign? Wouldn't a tattoo placed somewhere differently do the same thing? And this is what you need to know. Circumcision 
covenant in that day, it involved this ideal idea of sealing a covenant. To seal a covenant, you had to act out the curse of breaking that covenant. So get this. If you, for example, were to make a covenant with a king, you would not take out a sheet of paper, you would not have a lawyer draw up all the words, and then you sign the dotted line. Nope, that is not how it would work. In those days, you would take an animal, and you would cut that thing in half, and you would place half of it over here, and you would place half of it over here, and then you would walk between these dead animal parts. And by doing so, you are sealing the covenant and basically saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. Oh, imagine if we did our business promises covenants like this today. Imagine if we did, instead of a wedding band to represent our covenant seal with our spouse, our spouse and I, with God as a witness, we would walk through two dead animals at the, in front of the church altar or out in the venue place. Kind of makes for a great photo album picture. <laughs> Imagine, though, that if we did that, with that type of sincerity attached to the covenant, in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17, we find God making this kind of covenant with Abraham and the people of Israel. Genesis 15 is for y'all. That's your homework for the week. Jot it down. Read Genesis 15. Figure it out. Summer school for you. Genesis 17 I want to talk about because Genesis 17 is where we have Abraham in covenant with God and the covenant is be circumcised. Abraham is 99 years old. He has a son, 13 years old. And he has a whole bunch of men, servants, employees. And all of them are to be circumcised at the same time. And then every newborn Jewish boy on the eighth day would be circumcised. Can, can you get a mental picture of that day? There is no shortage of ice bags. I mean, this is going a big day. And I want you to remember this. The action represents, the circumcision action, it represents the curse of possible disobedience to the covenant made with God. What would happen if Israel disobeyed the laws God gave them to obey? In effect, the same thing that happened when a Jewish man was circumcised. Cut off from God. Can we all agree that the meaning of circumcision that we have today in our culture is vastly different than the meaning of circumcision in Genesis 17 and Acts 15? Can we agree on that? So what we have here in Acts 15 is an attack on the gospel and on the church. We don't know who these men were. We just know that they came from Judea. They are teaching a false gospel. And with so many 
First converts already being Jews, already being circumcised. Can you see that if this teaching doesn't get corrected, if this teaching were to continue, it could be an avalanche of trouble on the church? Basically, these men were saying that if you really want to be saved, you have to become culturally Jewish. And, and I'm thinking that if that would have happened back then, that most of us, if not all of us, would not be sitting here today. Like, what would a Jewish culture, Christianity, look like in spreading? How long would that last? How many male converts do you think would come along and say, oh, that's what it takes? It would entirely change the way that we do evangelism today. Can you see yourself going to the square? Come to the square, Bible in one hand, scalpel in the other. It's a big deal. I don't know that we fully grasp it. But in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas react to this teaching this way. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate. Note, there is a time to use words and debate and argue and defend the gospel anytime it is being undermined. Paul and Barnabas do this, and verse 2 continues, the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. Oh, they're going to deal with this matter. This was a big moment in the church history. It meant walking another 250, 300 miles for Paul and Barnabas and the people who came with them to make sure they get this right. Think it's worth the sacrifice? Get those steps in? Yes. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported to God, they reported all that God had done with them. So it's a happy, united meeting that's going on. And then verse 5, here it comes. But some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the laws of Moses. Oh, that sounds a whole lot like verse 1 again. But it's not entirely. I want you to see these two verses because I think it's very important that we start to distinguish what's going on with this. Okay? In verse 1, we've got some men came down from Judea. Don't know who they are. In verse 5, some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees. So one group we don't have identified at all. The other group we do. They are believing Pharisees. And someone might ask, believing Pharisee? Is that even like a thing? Can, can that happen? I know believers and I know Pharisees, but can you have believing Pharisees? And the answer is, yes, there it is, in God's print. And we also know that, like, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he turned to Christ. Paul, we've already acknowledged, he was a Pharisee, and he turned to Christ. I get it, it's hard to kind of fathom, because in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Pharisees are presented as hypocritical, proud, very opponent-like against Jesus. They're very smug and very self-righteous about how they were delusional that they thought pleasing God meant keeping the law. 
So here we have this group of people in verse 5 that are identified as believing Pharisees. It's also interesting to point out these guys came down from Judea. They said, be circumcised. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. This group of believing Pharisees, they say to be circumcised, but they don't give why. That's interesting. I have a thought on that. I think it's because this group is saying to be saved, you really had to do this, false teaching. And I think this group of Pharisees were just really wrong in what they were teaching. Like, they were teaching a bad, false way of living a Christian life. They, said, they, they put all of Christianity life living on the external. Like, do all these things and you will look like a very religious person. Oh, the Pharisees were very much about that. So I, I, interesting to note, you can decide for yourself how you want that to be, but I think that's what it's looking like in the, as we keep going through this, um, this chapter right here. The third thing that's, that's different is the guys from Judea, they only said you had to be circumcised. But the Pharisees that were believers, they said not only you have to be circumcised, you got to do all the other 613, 612 other Jewish law commands. So I think that the two groups are very different, one being saved, one not saved, one teaching a false doctrine, and one teaching a bad way to live Christianity. So what happens next? A meeting is called to order. It is the first ever church meeting. You ever been to a church where they have church meetings? Have you ever been to a church meeting at Good News? Oh, we don't do that here. Here's what happens. Verse 6. Then the apostle and the elders assembled to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the very same way. After much debate, it does not say like it was a debate of like yelling and screaming or if it was like organized and controlled. You get to decide on that. But I think some of us have probably experienced the uglier side, the yelling and screaming side. True story. Sherry and I once attended a church where the deacon sued the pastor for wanting to make a biblical change of elder-led church. True story. After much debate, Peter speaks. If we were doing a series on the life of Peter, he again would be found here in the book of Acts. God was using Peter the same way he was using Paul and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. 
Doesn't it seem right that Peter's like the first teacher? Like the first speaker? Like that's kind of his character. I'll handle this. And a lot of times we get up to Peter and we're like, oh no, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? This time Peter hits a home run with his words. He is very compelling, very convincing. And first, this is what he says. Peter says in verse 7, remember the past? That this was God's doing? God, God's choice? He chose to use me in my mouth? And you're like, oh, wait a minute. Do we know that story? Because we're doing the life of Paul, not Peter. So let me remind you of this one. Ready? In Acts chapter 10, Peter is told to go to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, and he fears God, meaning he prayed to God, he saw the Jews and their religious acts, and it was very intriguing to him, and he wanted to know more about the one real God. And one time after praying, God said, Cornelius, your prayers have been answered. Go send for Paul to come to your house. That would have never, ever happened. Peter was a Jew. He is not going to a Gentile's house. No way. Except, in the meantime, God had given Peter a dream, a vision, that said, go to Cornelius' house, and when you get there, eat all the pork you want. This would not be normal living. See, God is involved in this, and Peter is reminding them, you guys remember? This was God's choice. He wanted us to do this. It's an amazing chapter. And here's how it unfolds, Acts 10.44. While Peter was speaking these words, while he was speaking the gospel to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message, and the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Peter uses history he reminds them that every he reminds them of stuff that everyone in the room knew about to defend the salvation for the gentiles that is by grace alone and not works like circumcision or any of the other laws he keeps going at verses 8 and 9 and god who knows the heart testified to them by giving the holy spirit just as he also did to us he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith Peter defends the Gentiles by saying, God, who knows the heart of everyone, has testified for them. That's courtroom language. What happens when a person testifies? They give evidence. They give an account. They give proof of something that happened and being true. And Peter is saying, God is behind this movement. God is vouching for them. God is the one who has given them this gift of the Holy Spirit. God does not give His Holy Spirit to unbelievers. Only believers. Romans 8, 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives where? In you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. Peter contends that there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile when it comes to salvation. Both are saved by faith, through grace, by grace. Circumcision has nothing to do with salvation for the Jew or the Gentile. And then Peter asks this most compelling question, verse 10. Now then, you guys, 
Why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? He's like, don't test God here. Don't put a yoke on the neck of these Gentiles that we can't even carry ourselves. You've all seen the yoke, right? You got that mental picture on the oxen, big, bulky, heavy, certainly uncomfortable. That's the picture that he uses here. Interesting that later in Scripture, Jesus will say, my yoke is easy, but the yoke of the law, that's miserable. If you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress or watched that movie, you get a good visual idea of what they're talking about there. The burden of trying to keep all these laws just right. That's not the gospel. And Peter is like, come on, guys. You know that we don't and that we can't keep up with all of these laws. Do you know some of the 613 of them? One is about how long your sideburns are. Get out the measuring. Another is about how far you're allowed to walk in a day, on a certain day. Another is, oh, your clothing material. What is it made of? And that either makes it right or wrong to wear. Cotton, polyester, a little blend of both. And then the whole food part. Oh, can we eat chicken nuggets? Filet mignon, little BLT, and on and on it goes. But Peter is hammering home proof after proof that the salvation given to the Gentiles, it was God's idea, and God's decision is final. And he concludes with verse 11. We believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. He is speaking for everyone in the room when he uses that kind of pronoun. What's the pronoun he used? We. Guys, they're all in this together. We know that this is the truth. That Jesus has saved them the same way that he has saved us. And I wonder at this point in the meeting if the people in the room are like starting to nod their head like, yeah, this is, this is right. We're, we're saved by faith. We're not saved by circumcision. I wonder if there's that kind of agreeance coming to. Next to the podium is Paul and Barnabas in verse 12. The whole assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and the wonders that God had done through them, through them among the Gentiles. No doubt, Paul and Barnabas, again, they're telling the same stories over again. Remember when they got back to Antioch and it's sitting in their lazy boys? Hey, let me tell you all the good stories that God was doing. They, they tell those same stories again. They never get boring. God was doing this over here, and he was doing this over here, and then we sailed over here, and he did this, and it was movement, 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 and everyone there. I am sure that they, I'm sure Paul and Barnabas made a compelling case. Oh, yeah, Gentiles are saved by faith, not circumcision. So Peter makes a compelling argument, Paul and Barnabas do, and then James comes to the mic. If you don't know, James is the younger half-brother of Jesus. I have heard several pastors over the years part-jokingly say when they preach that if James can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it must be true. 
Because if you've ever had an older brother, you definitely would know that no older brother could be God. True in the Davison family? Probably so. And yours as well, I'm sure. But imagine what it must have been like to have your brother as God. It took James a little bit of time to believe this. But eventually, he did. And now, here he is. He is serving the church in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 13, after they stopped speaking, Paul and Barnabas, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, which is Peter's other name, has reported how God first intervened to take the Gentiles from the Gentiles, a people for his name. Like Simon has already said that that's going to happen. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. Oh, that's a big deal. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does these things known from long ago. James knows his Bible. He either pulls it out and reads it to the people, or he quotes it. Regardless, what a fantastic way to deal with things in a church meeting. Use Scripture. James does this. He's like, let's get this straight, guys. Peter has said that God was going to use his mouth as the peace to lead to salvation for these Gentiles. But you know what? Way before Peter was saying it, old brother Amos, he was saying it a long, long time ago as God's prophetic voice. And James comes to this incredible conclusion in verse 19. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. This is an incredible display of church leadership at its best at this very first ever church meeting. The apostles, the elders, they all come together, they debate, they talk, they hash out their differences, they use Scripture to help along the way. And so let me just go and say that at our Jerusalem council meetings, anytime there are more than two people, or if there are two people in the room at the same time, there are going to be differences. And can you imagine how many differences we have represented here now? And what's the key to doing this? To talk, to debate, to discuss, find the differences, use scripture all along the way. We see the leaders doing this. Excellent example of leadership. But, wow, oh wow, oh wow, is the comment made by James. Can I have that on the board? It, or we, should not make it difficult for people who turn to God. It should not be difficult. We should not make it difficult for people who have turned to God. And I think we can even go a little before that and say, we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. That's the application point for us today. 
Next week, God willing, a letter gets written to the Gentiles that summarizes this meeting. And God willing, we will get to that next week. But for today, I realize that circumcision is not the leading topic inside of the church that's causing some trouble. But oh, do we have some severe black eyes throughout our history of how we have. And if you have not grown up in the church, I'm about to tell you things that you probably don't know about, and I'm disappointed to say them to you. Maybe you should leave at this point. If you have grown up in the church, you're going to go, oh, yeah. This is, this is my lifetime, right? Young 30, no, 50s, okay. Um, Churches make it extremely difficult for people to turn to God or who have turned to God when they make egregious rules. Like, we start to make rules that kind of make salvation look like it's everything on the external and nothing on the internal. God forbid. I have lived long enough to know and to hear churches will make cross-the-board rules, if you use a deck of playing cards, you're as good as going to hell. Where is that? You cannot be involved in any church ministry if you attend theaters. No makeup will be allowed to be worn by our ladies when they attend the assembly. Ladies, would you still come today? Now listen, I am not against personal convictions. I have them. You do too. But when a church, as an organization, makes a blanket statement and says this is the rule for everyone, that is legalism. That is making it really hard to turn people to God is making it really hard for people who have turned to God. Be firm on your convictions and be really convinced that it is your conviction. And don't make it mine and mine not yours. Now, God's word is full of right is right and wrong is wrong. We are not talking about ah, fornication, good for you, Bad for you? Okay, no, no. God's word is very, very clear there. That's across the board. That's a rule, y'all, for all Christians. But alcohol? Listen, I get it. The Bible is full of warnings of handling alcohol. I, I realize that over 100,000 people a year die because of alcohol. But to come across the board and say, you can't do it, or you, you can't do it and be a Christian, ooh, that is not what the Bible teaches. And we certainly don't do that with other things. Do you know obesity kills people as well? And we're not up here saying, okay, no more eating, no food. But what we will say is, hey, try to eat healthy. Try to have a little moderation. You know, Oreos are okay sometimes. 
again, I don't want to undermine and be lighthearted with like convictions because they are real and we should act upon them if they are from God. But oh, we cannot make statements like this that make it hard to turn people to God. Now, let me just say it. Politics. Sometimes the church can go, uh, you got to believe this and do this and vote this way and get this thing right and that's right and then you're good inside the church. It is not the place for good news church to tell you who to vote for or how to vote. I find it really interesting that Jesus' 12 disciples, do you know that two of them were like strong, strong Democrat and strong, strong, strong Republican. Well, those are my words. But Simon the Zealot, he hated Rome. Matthew the tax collector, oh, he was helping Rome. Can you imagine the bonfires with the disciples sitting around that fire? You've got two politically opposite polarizing people. And yet, they put those differences aside for the mission at hand and the gospel. We have to be careful of what we make as rules. All this outward pressure and stresses. And I think this is true for new believers and old believers. We can all get caught up in this. And certainly, the unsaved, Sherry is part of the women's uh, summer reading group, ladies that are getting together, and they're reading this book. Um, the Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. And she gave you know, me a quote the other day from the book that just resonates, I think, with what we're talking about here. We have to stop saying, love the sinner, hate their sin. And here's why. We need to be saying, love the sinner, hate our own sin. Because what happens then is we all of a sudden like lift up and elevate their sin as something greater than ours. There should never, ever, ever be a time where an unsaved person, where they are like extreme, hardcore, atheist, agnostic, gay, transgender, straight, even moral, like a good citizen in town, there should never be a time where their sin is highlighted as being worse than my sin. What people need is the gospel not directions for saving themselves and looking better on the outside. They need the knowledge of how God has saved them. And the gospel is this, that Jesus has done everything for you to be right with God. Let's be a church who does not make it hard for people to turn to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit and how it teaches us and how it makes us more like you.
certainly thank you for your grace, your patience, your long-suffering with your people. Forgive us for whenever we would try to change the gospel, whether it's watering it down or adding to it. Lord, let us delight in the true gospel of Jesus and his work on the cross and how he has offered eternal life to all those who believe. I'm convinced, Father, that as I see in my own life and we see with each other, like you're the one who changes us to not rules. So, Lord, let us love the gospel more and more each and every day. And when we are different, let us have these kinds of actions that still create the unity, still create the love, still create the joy of being in your service, and to do it together. I get sad when we just leave not what you intend for us to help us to to wrestle with these truths well and to do it for your good your glory in jesus name we pray amen